It's Thursday, March 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More big news in the time of coronavirus. The big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Fiat Chrysler, are closing down all factories to protect workers from the spread of coronavirus. But what about other manufacturers? Other factories are still working, and they are staggering shifts and installing barriers to protect workers from infection. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, Joe Biden has increased his delegate lead in the race for the Democratic nomination for president. Biden swept the three states that voted on Tuesday, Arizona, Florida, and Illinois. This all makes Sanders' path to the nomination very difficult. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill, joins us for the big takeaways from the latest round of voting. Finally, a little bit of perspective as we face this coronavirus pandemic. It is a disaster that has no modern parallel. Even some of the worst events that have happened, like natural disasters or terrorist attacks, happen in one place at one time. But this is a health threat hitting the globe all at once, and it will affect us in many profound ways for some time. Brian Walsh, future correspondent at Axios, joins us for why this is an endurance race with no clear end yet. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Thing which is really interesting about what's happening in the auto industry is that the unions and the automakers made a different agreement just yesterday where they were going to keep the plants open. Oh. But for whatever reason, the situation changed and now they decided to close them. Joining us now is Austin Hufford, U.S. manufacturing reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Austin. Glad to be here. So we're going to be talking about manufacturing right now in the time of coronavirus and lockdowns and things like that. The big development that just happened is that the big three automakers are closing down their factories to protect their workers from spreading coronavirus. So that's Ford, General Motors, Fiat, Chrysler. I think this is going to affect about 150,000 workers. Austin, the news just came out, but what do we know about this change? As you might imagine, this is a huge deal. What it means is that it's going to have massive ramifications through the whole supply chain. If you think about it, if you make wheels for automakers, if you make engines, whatever you do, suddenly your customer has evaporated overnight. And so what that means is that they are not likely to be the only ones to close. Do we know if they're going to receive any supplemental pay, unemployment benefits, anything like that? I think that's all kind of being discussed right now with their unions. It's very unclear. As you might imagine, this is a pretty unprecedented situation. And so I think the unions and the companies are all trying to work together. The thing which is really interesting about what's happening in the auto industry is that the unions and the automakers made a different agreement just yesterday where they were going to keep the plants open. But for whatever reason, the situation changed and now they decided to close them. There are a lot of manufacturers that are still open here in the States and abroad And they're going into overtime also trying to figure out how to protect their workers. What's going on on that front? As you might imagine, it's really tough for manufacturers. You can't really work from home if you're a factory worker, right? Like unlike, you know, a journalist or many people in the economy, working from home is just not an option. And so what they're doing is they're trying to obviously increase cleaning. They're actually separating some ships. I basically spoke to a couple manufacturers who are trying to basically almost like essentially uh, separate out the company. So if one part of the company gets hit with coronavirus, the rest of the company will remain safe. And so let's say your morning shift ended at 3 p.m. Now they're saying we're not going to start the afternoon shift until 3.30. 
So there isn't that interaction between the morning and the afternoon people like there typically used to be. And even I saw installing barriers between workers to help them spread the infection as well. Some companies are looking into, can we install plastic sheeting? Can we install plexiglass? What can we do just to kind of protect our workers from one another? And I think it's very unclear. Some manufacturers say they're actually looking to what happened in China because obviously China dealt with this already or has been dealing with this for several months now. So we act, they actually trying to call up colleagues there and just understand what are the best practices to keep your workers safe, but keep production running. Going back to the auto industry briefly, in Europe, a lot of the car makers and other manufacturers have suspended production as well. So, I mean, overall, the auto industry domestically and foreign is going to just take a huge hit right now. And I think these companies say they're closing for a number of reasons. I mean, it might be a part shortage. It might be because of the health concerns. And also, there's also these issues of demand. In China, when everyone was quarantined, I think auto sales dropped something like 80% in one month. So if you think about it, right now, who's putting down 10 grand for a car? I imagine it's not that many people. You did talk to a few manufacturers that are staying open. One specifically in California, where there's a shelter in place orders and there's a big lockdown going on. You talked to some that are still going to stay open and still keep manufacturing despite that. That's something that we're closely following. I mean, as you might imagine, shelter in place orders haven't happened in this country, you know, maybe ever. But those orders typically have exemptions for, quote unquote, essential industries. So typically that means grocery stores, that means gas stations, that means pharmacies. But all of those industries have supply chains. And so if you make packaged canned food for grocery stores, you might be able to classify your factory as an essential industry and stay open. But again, this is all unprecedented. So we're not sure how long those arguments can last in this crisis. As the numbers, as the testing increases, this is kind of what we've been waiting for as the availability of the tests increase and the numbers start rising. I can't imagine that more and more things are going to start to have to shut down and Unfortunately, as you mentioned, these manufacturers, they have to go in. They can't do this stuff from home. And it's just going to affect the supply chain in big ways to come for the near future. Right now, I mean, I, I'm closely monitoring what's happening in San Francisco, as you alluded to, because I think that might be a preview of what could happen in the rest of the country, depending on if the factories there remain open, if they remain closed. I think there's been a lot of discussion with Tesla, where Tesla wants to remain open, that they told the government, we're an essential industry, but someone in the, at the county level says, no, you're not, you need to remain closed. And so it's a little bit unclear right now what's happening with them and if their factory there is going to remain open or not. Austin Hufford, U.S. manufacturing reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So let me say, especially to the young voters who have been inspired by Senator Sanders, I hear you. I know what's at stake. I know what we have to do. Our goal as a campaign and my goal as a candidate for president is to unify this party. And then to unify the nation. Joining us now is Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thanks for having me. So we had another round of primaries come and go. Joe Biden was the big winner. He swept all of the states that voted. So that was Arizona, Florida, and Illinois. I think Ohio postponed their primary. So Julia, tell us the big takeaways. What is it looking like? It's increasingly looking more difficult for Bernie Sanders to get the nomination. 
Absolutely. And I think it's just the margin by which Joe Biden is winning is very telling. I mean, if you look at a state like Florida, a very big state, um, it was a state that Hillary Clinton did win in 2016. So I don't think the Sanders people were relying too much on it. But in 2016, you saw some pockets of Sanders blue or progressive blue and maybe North Florida, some more working class areas. This time around, it seems like the whole state really, or close to the whole state, was very much for Biden. I believe all of the networks called that state at 8 p.m. once everything from the central time zone on the panhandle of the state to the eastern time zone of the state. Once they were all closed at 8 p.m., they called that race for Joe Biden, Joe Biden leading by 40 points. Very similar to story in Illinois and Arizona, Joe Biden just sweeping those. So what we're waiting to see is how he does in terms of the delegate count. However, I think Sanders could potentially hold out because we did see some criticism from his campaign and some supporters of his campaign for Florida, Arizona, and Illinois to go ahead with holding their primaries after Ohio decided to postpone their primary. And then, of course, you have Georgia and Louisiana postponing their primary. So I think it's going to put the party in a bit of a difficult situation because they want to get the primary wrapped up as soon as possible. But at the same time, there's a number of voters in different states who have yet to be heard. And then you have Sanders, who probably wants to see all of the results come in from those states before he drops out. His supporters are very committed to him. Obviously, they look at this as more of a campaign. They look at it as a movement. So he's going to want to support them and stay true to them as much as possible. It's all about the delegate count. At Right now, Joe Biden has over 1,100. Bernie Sanders has slightly over 800. So the math is very hard for him on that front. But, uh, you know, we're ta- we've been talking about coronavirus, COVID-19 a lot, and it really is an impact there. I think Bernie Sanders' campaign manager said Sanders is going to reassess what's going to happen with his campaign and his followers. But he has some time because so many states are canceling or postponing their primaries. He's got like three weeks before anything happens. And even that little bulk of states that will be voting, very few delegates there. Very few delegates there. And I think the response to coronavirus is giving him some time. However, I think that window to maybe try to win over some voters with the coronavirus response has really passed. I mean, I think you saw Joe Biden present his coronavirus plan, and it was widely praised. It was very much, these are concrete solutions for what we need to do now. Going forward, he recommended bringing in the military to get hospital beds, lots of concrete near future plans from Joe Biden. But when you heard Bernie Sanders speak about the coronavirus, it was kind of just saying, well, this is why we need Medicare for all. Now, we did give a fireside chat on Saturday night and address that issue. He's addressed that issue in his digital rally. Uh, ahead of Tuesday's primaries. He had that rally on Monday where he addressed the issue. But you saw it seemed like Vice President Biden had a much more robust plan. And I think Biden definitely has an edge up on him in this and that Biden dealt with a very similar situation, clearly not on the scale as we're seeing now, but he dealt with the Ebola crisis in 2014. He dealt with swine flu in 2009 and 2010. So this definitely played better for Biden, not saying that the virus plays well for anyone, but I think this gave Biden an opportunity to really hone in on his crisis management executive skills, if you will. I think it was last week, maybe a couple of weeks ago, some of the polls had showed that the majority of people do trust Joe Biden more in a time of crisis like this, to handle a crisis like this, than they would 
Bernie Sanders. So that could definitely be helping him, at least in this front. Let's talk really quickly about demographics. Joe Biden obviously doing very well with black voters. Latino voters are starting to come around. But one that he really still needs to get a better foothold on is younger voters, which a lot of them do like Bernie Sanders. So that's the next big thing for Joe Biden, at least. And you saw Joe Biden last night and his address from Delaware really try to appeal to Sanders' supporters and maybe even young people as well. He said, quote unquote, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. Talked about the need for a comprehensive health care system. Talked about the need to address income inequality and climate change. So he is definitely handing an olive branch to that side of the aisle because he definitely knows that he needs young people. And although the Obama coalition definitely included young people, we're not seeing the same numbers of young people in the Biden coalition this time around because the newer voters are very much flocking towards Bernie Sanders. So I think you're going to see Biden continue to try to wrap his arms around some progressive policies. There's a 2005 bank bill that Elizabeth Warren supported, and she came before the Senate to talk about it then, but Joe Biden was against it. He has since come out and said he supports it. So he's definitely trying to come around to some of these progressive policies. And I think by doing that, he can be able to maybe create a better relationship with an Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. And then from there, they can work on you know how to improve Biden's standing among younger voters. Julia Manchester, political reporter at The Hill. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. global nature is really something we haven't faced. I mean, if you go back all the way to the Spanish flu pandemic, surely there's similarities there, but it's a very, very different world, much more globally interconnected, much more higher standards of healthcare, so we expect more. Joining us now is Brian Walsh, future correspondent at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Brian. It's good to be here. Continuing our coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, this is really something that's going on that has no modern parallel for us. A lot of times when you hear coverage of this, people are going back to the Spanish flu of 1918. That's one of the earliest things we can kind of compare this to maybe. People, millennials and surrounding generations have just no experience with anything like this. And we're starting to feel the effects of it. There's lockdowns happening in different states and cities, bars, restaurants are closing. All of this stuff is happening. And this is going to kind of change how we operate for the time being. The economy is going to suffer because of this. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen as a result of trying to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Brian, tell us a little bit about this. What are we in for? There's really no precedent we go back to, at least now within our modern memory. Like We may want to go back to traumatic events like Hurricane Katrina or 9-11, but the important thing to remember there is those events were geographically limited, limited by time. You know, They affected the people who were in the disaster area or around New York, obviously, during 9-11. But this is truly global. There's no real place to escape both the direct effects of the virus itself, eventually, as it continues to spread, and certainly no real place to escape the social distancing measures that have to be put in place to combat that spread. So that global nature is really something we haven't faced. I and mean, if you go back all the way to the Spanish flu pandemic, surely there's similarities there, but it's a very, very different world, much more globally interconnected, much more higher standards of healthcare. So we expect more. So what we're in for both, I think, however long this actually takes, and then the impact that we'll have following it, it's not something we have any experience with. You mentioned in your article that something instructive for us could be going back to World War II and how we operated then. Tell us a little bit about that. 
I think that really World War II might be the best example you can go back to. And, and that's not so much because of the disease itself, but for the total public mobilization that the response to World War II really required the American public. Obviously, not just the millions of Americans who were drafted or volunteered when the service and actually fought and they died, but those here at the home and what we had to do in terms of changing our day-to-day lives, that we had to deal with rationing of public goods, of gasoline, of food. Even here in New York City, where I live, we actually had to dim out the skyline of the city to reduce the risk of ships being picked up by submarines actually during the war. And that lasted for three or four years, and it was totally transformative. And while the public did get behind that, it wasn't quite as easy as it looks back in retrospect. I mean, it took effort it took fighting to, to really get to that point, but that's kind of what we need to deal with. And of course, what it really requires us right now mostly to do is stay at home, not go out, don't be part of a chain of infection. But that's going to be hard because it's really going to require us to give up most of the things we think of as daily life. It seems like the economy is going to suffer greatly because of this. You know, a lot of sectors are closing down and suffering because travel restrictions and all that. So what's next? What are we looking yeah. toward? The only sort of global sort of disaster we can have had that, that sort of is, is like this, other than a big war like World War II, is actually a big global recession, something that spreads around the world like a contagion, really impacts us, changes daily life. The difference here is that it's going to be incredibly immediate. You're not just talking about the unwinding you get during a downturn, a slowdown. You're talking about just demand, jobs, businesses essentially being vaporized over the next few weeks as people stop spending money, stop going out, or stop being able to do anything, really. It's hard to really even prepare for that. I think just what you're seeing from the Trump administration with some of the measures they've talked about over the last day or two, talking about sending out checks to Americans as giving people $1,000 is a testament of just how extreme that's going to be. You're going to really need to float people to keep them going. And while we're only seeing the beginning of that, that's going to really be going hand in glove with the speed of the coronavirus itself. You have this one-two punch that that's going to be hard to endure, I think. And that's very different even than 100 years ago when you didn't have a global economy that was so connected and so quick to get sick, essentially, when something like this happens. And I want to read the bottom line from your article. It says, there's no escaping the public pain to come. We're just beginning an endurance test that has no clear end. And not to alarm anybody, because the vast majority of cases do experience mild symptoms if you have COVID-19 and all that. But this is serious. You know, we have to practice all this social distancing to help mitigate that spread. And, you know, we're looking at the healthcare system in America here. People are talking about a ventilator shortage that could be coming. This is one of those things, as you've been saying, kind of how when we operate on the global level like this or when something's affecting us that way, you know, we can't just necessarily borrow stuff from other countries because they're going through just the same exact thing. Exactly right. I mean, this is not, again, like a hurricane where you can send aid from the rest of the world, the rest of the country, tell people out or shelter them. Everyone's going to need to be looking after their own needs while sort of doing their part for the public. And, I, you know, I understand that people, it takes them time to fully get that because absolutely you're right that the vast majority of people will probably not really face a direct health threat from this virus. So, yeah, I can get why it takes time to realize that. But it really does require that sort of coming together. And this is the endurance test I talk about because it is simply a certain amount of public pain. It's going to vary from person to person, but we're all going to have to undergo some of it. And that's where the test will be of us as a public, us as a whole country, really us as a whole world for whether we can endure that because it's going to take a lot of time. You know, we don't know how much time. It could be a matter of weeks. It could be a matter of months. I mean, some of the upper limits go beyond that, which is really hard to contemplate. But that's what we have in front of us, a marathon race that doesn't have a clear finish line. And we just have to keep running in the meantime. Brian Walsh, future correspondent at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. 
that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.